Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. you stand with me and we're going to look together at Luke 10 verses 5 through 25. Jesus has chosen the 12 and then we read these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel, the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death you will be hated by all for my name's sake the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly i say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The word of God. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word, for the word that is life, the word that we have the privilege of reading this morning and I of declaring I pray that you will, Father, cause us together to come under the work of your word, that it will not come merely as phonemes and syllables and vowels and consonants, but it will come as the word of God by the Holy Spirit with power, Father, bringing conviction in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. These verses contain something that is, that is important, that is actually precious to us. And that precious thing is is the manner in which we carry the word of God to the world. We have in these verses Jesus' missionary method. The way he sends his disciples out. But it's not just the way he sends his disciples out on one occasion. There are principles here that are effective for every occasion. That should be listened to as clearly today 
and put into practice as forthrightly today as in the day that Jesus sent the 12 out. These principles are principles. They are not hard and fast facts, but they are general truths that we should understand and follow. And, and it's, not, it's not right to say those are principles and general truths, but not hard and fast, and then to dismiss them. They are to guide us. These principles are foundational to the witness of the Christian, to the spread of the gospel around the world. They're, they're not something we can just say, well, you know, that was good for then, and if you can do it now, that would be good as well. But if not, well, do your best. These are principles Jesus expected of his disciples. And though we may not fill out everyone in exactly the same way, they do guide us today. We know this because first, this is the method he gives his disciples on sending them out. This is his method, and he gives it to his disciples, and he repeats it on other occasions, especially at the end of his life when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And there he elaborates on it. He says, baptizing people and teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. So he speaks a little more about what they're to teach, and, but it's the same principles. It's the same methodology. How do we know that this is a template that we should be following today? That it's universal and not just for that time or those 12 on this occasion. Well, first, this, this is a journey that is limited in persons and length and scope. It's limited to the 12 in length. It takes up a minor portion of the, 12, uh, the three years of Jesus' public ministry. Can't be more than a journey of months, probably weeks, not years. And in scope, it is a journey to Judea and Galilee exclusively. They're not to go to anywhere else. The disciples are forbidden to go to Gentile realms or even the Samaritan villages that they will pass through as they pass between Galilee and Judea proper. So you'd say, well, that's a confined journey. That's a confined situation. When we get beyond this, we can do more. We don't need to follow. So Jesus instructs his disciples on how they should go, yes, in this confined, to these 12, in this small journey to this limited location. Yet it's clear as he goes on that he's speaking of a greater missionary journey of other missionary journeys beyond this one because he says to them, you will one day bear witness for me before Gentile rulers in Gentile lands. Now how could he be expecting them to be in Gentile lands if, if he's speaking only to them about this journey when he's told them they're not to go to the Gentile lands? Do you understand? He foresees the day that they'll go well beyond where he's sending them right now. And so this is clear as he speaks about Gentile lands that he's expecting them to one day go on, on a vaster, broader journey. Vaster, broader journeys. And when he says that though they will be persecuted and will need to flee from one town to another in their flight, he says, they will not pass through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does it mean? Well, it's their passing through all the towns of Israel. As they're fleeing that he's speaking about. He's telling them that they will not have passed through all the towns of Israel before he returns. And it's immediately after he has told them that they will be persecuted. And that they must move on to other towns as they're persecuted. 
what some people believe he means is that in just a few weeks, they're going to come back. But already we've seen that they're not going to be in Gentile lands in a few weeks. Some people believe that, but it makes his, his statement contradictory, self-contradicting. Calvin writes about those who believe that this is a, a statement that, that the fall of Jerusalem, which occurs in 67 A.D., um, is in view with Christ. And Calvin just says that's ridiculous to say that the Son of Man returned in 67 A.D. when Jerusalem fell is just, he calls it ridiculous, and I agree. Um, but there are probably some who would say that today in Reformed circles. Calvin says what the church has always believed, that passing through all the villages of Israel is passing through all the places which will give you refuge as you're fleeing in these dark days. All the people of God. And what it, the promise is, is that there won't be, uh, there won't come a time that there won't be a place that will receive those who have to flee. And that the coming of the Son of Man is the second coming that's in view. That's the, the natural understanding of this. That's the natural reading of it. And so we have another piece of evidence that Jesus is speaking here about future missionary journeys. Your work and mine. Not just the work of the disciples on this occasion. There is a, another very powerful vein of reasoning that causes us to conclude that this is a universal template for carrying the gospel. <laughs> and that's the obvious one that... It's the template that Jesus followed. And it's the template that he gave his disciples. And Jesus lived this way. He went and went and went. He healed. He declared. He moved on. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't carry money. He was supported along the way. But he didn't demand money for his, his, his healing. The work he did as he went. He wouldn't receive money for it. It's what Jesus did. It's what the disciples did. It's the example of Peter. In the beginning of Acts, it's the example of Paul throughout the book of Acts. It's just the, it's the way the church grew. And so we see that they carried this out. And when the church grows, it's because Christians believe the words of Jesus here. And they act like this. They actually follow this template. So I want to talk to you about this, this method and, and what defines it. And how it's distinct from the method that we have come to understand as being the, the method of the proclamation of the gospel today and I want to I want to draw your attention to four things I want you to remember that this template that Jesus gives is transactional authoritative fruitful and confrontational I'll explain it but those four words might help you to remember it transactional authoritative fruitful and confrontational transactional we begin with this we need to recognize how very transactional this methodology is. The disciples are told to go proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're to go out and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is what John the Baptist had gone and done. He had gone, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, this is what Jesus had done. It says in, in Matthew 4 that when he began his public ministry, he began preaching the kingdom of, his, of heaven is at hand. And so this is the third generation of this proclamation because John the Baptist did it, Jesus did it, and now the disciples are being sent out. And they're being told to do it as well. Three generations in a row of, of the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the message we're to carry. But remember, 
that when John the Baptist went declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and when Jesus went declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and when the disciples go out, and we find this in the book of Acts, and declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there's always an imperative that follows that declarative statement. The declarative statement is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The imperative is what? What do they always say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent. So they go out and they declare, and Jesus did it, John the Baptist did it, it says it of Jesus, it says it of John the Baptist, I know it doesn't say it here about them, but we can extrapolate, we can put that in there because we know that when they go out in the book of Acts, it says they preached repentance. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Disciples preach repentance. It doesn't say so, but we know it from the message of Jesus and John and the book of Acts. Peter's first command to the crowd on the day of Pentecost is what they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent. And the next day he preaches again. Well, in Acts 3, I don't know if it's the next day, but in Acts 3, right after Acts 2, he declares to the crowd, repent. And later in his life, towards the end, not at the beginning, when Paul is on trial, the, the end of Acts, Paul describes his call on the road to Damascus to King Agrippa. And then summarizes his subsequent decades of ministry by saying, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, the vision he had on the road to Damascus, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, we'll talk more about repentance in a bit, but notice this. They go preaching the kingdom preaching, repentance, and when they come to a, visit, a, a, a town that they're visiting, Jesus instructs them to whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now we don't know if they are to do this thing before preaching and healing or after, but what they are commanded to do is to determine who in the town that they're going to, who is worthy. And they are to stay with that worthy person as they do their preaching and healing ministry and then they are to move on. And they are to make a, a judgment on moving on as to whether that house had actually been worthy. So initially they're called to find worthy people and to stay with them. And then on leaving the house, they're told, determine whether it's worthy. Has it been worthy? In which case they are to leave their blessing of peace upon it. But if it has proven unworthy, they are to take back their blessing of peace and in the towns where they're not received or welcomed or where their words are not listened to, they are to move on. And as they go, they are to shake the dust off their feet. This is a transactional call. This is a transactional ministry. This is a transactional declarative work, not a personal or relational first. It is not personal. It is not relational. Now, I'm not saying it's never personal and never relational. Clearly, it is. 
Clearly, it moves into the relational if there is a, a person there who is called by God and worthy. And they stay in that house. And then it becomes relational. But it doesn't begin at the relational level. It is not personal initially. It is declarative and transactional, not personal. They are there as authorities. They are there as ambassadors. It's not about them. It's about the one they speak of, the kingdom, the king of the kingdom that they're preaching, and the people that they're going to. And they are not to insert themselves and think that they're the key to the thing. They are not. They are not. Nor are we. We are not key to this, this, this work that God has given to us. We are not the ones in our personalities who make it happen. We are, we're like John the Baptist who says, you know, okay, I gotta, I, look, Jesus has come. I know you've all been following me and you like me. And he's speaking to his disciples in the crowds and he says, but, but he's the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. It's not about me. I must decrease. He must increase. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to decrease? To understand it's not how cool you are or how nice you are. Anything about you in the end. Now, of course, it, it does have to do with you. And it has to do with you in, before and after. But really, we must come to understand that it's not you that you are asking people to embrace, but God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. And too often, we come to think that it's us, that we are the ones, that we are the focus. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's why we have been so, so unfruitful as a church in America. We think if we make ourselves look good... Uh, let, we, let's be clear, they, they went doing certain good deeds. They had a power when they came to a town. And, and that power helped people. But that, that helping was momentary and not for everyone. They are told to go to the town and they are to decide whether people are worthy. What, what, are you worthy? What makes someone worthy? Have you ever thought to yourself, I should determine in witnessing whether this is a worthy person? How are you? What, what are the criteria you're going to use as you try and decide if this person is worthy? If this person has to be worthy in certain ways, then Jesus spent his, his time wrongly by going to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, sinners, right? So clearly that's not the issue. What makes someone worthy? Well, it's defined. Verse 14. What does it say? And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. What, what makes a person worthy? They listen. They listen. Go to the people who listen. Go to those who are willing to hear the word of God, and the others are unworthy. If they listen, they're worthy. If they don't accept the word, they're unworthy. If they reject you or the word, they are not worthy. It's not about you. It's not how they reveal their thoughts about you or what they think about you. You can be like Paul in the descriptions we have of him that may or may not be true. 
but they're pretty old. A short, hunched, squinty-eyed fellow <laughs> like Paul, not impressive in speech, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're not going to win people by being good-looking. Oh, you'll win them to you. But you're not going to win them to Jesus if you think your good looks are going to win them. You're not going to win them by your tattoos, you tattooed pastors. You're not going to win people by these things. You can do it, but don't think it's being evangelistic. This is not evangelism. I'm saying this, and I heard a amen, but let me say, okay, that's this generation. My generation was to look like you'd just come off the country club, right? You know? And, and I think if I look like I play with corporate titans at golf, um, then, then I will win people. And it's always there. It's always with us. This desire to, to, to put ourselves up there even as we're declaring Jesus. But really it's, it's me, me, me <laughs> that we're declaring. It's not about you. It's not. It's, not. it's transactional. It's not personal. Now, personal does... <laughs> Personal precedes, personal follows. Personal in that God has foreknown people, certain people from the foundation of the world. It's personal. God loves personally, right? And you're an instrument of God's in, in going to these people. So there is a personal aspect to it. And it becomes deeply personal afterwards. You see that when Paul has, has witnessed in a town and a church has, has come into existence, that there is such a deep love. There is such a powerful relationship and, and it's important, but, but don't put the personal before the message, the transactional. Don't put the personal before judging whether these people will listen to God. It's not about you. There is no room for self-ingratiation in this work. It's not about ingratiating yourself into the minds and hearts of people. It's not. It's not about you. You don't come before your message. After the message, when it wins hearts, plenty of room for personal relationship. It becomes personal. But at first, it is entirely transactional and not personal. Jesus preaches, Jesus teaches, but Jesus has relationships with what? Twelve? Only a very few. Scripture says that Jesus did not entrust himself to his audiences because he knew all people. He knew their hearts were willing to be with him because of his power and the works that he did, but he knew that those who were with him in that way were not willing to repent and listen to follow God, listen to God and follow his commands. Jesus did not entrust himself to those who did not follow God. The Bible tells us this. Jesus made decisions. Jesus revealed himself to those who were worthy, called by the Father. He sought them, he found them, he poured himself into them. He didn't spread himself like plaster or wallpaper all over the world and half an inch thick. He was deep and he was transactional. I marvel at people who say, I'm going to go to a city and I'm going to win this city because I'm going to do things that the people in the city are going to like. All the hip young churches... I mean, this is our day. My day had its thing as well. All the hip young pastors and churches that go in and say, we're going to minister to the artists in this town. We've come to help the artists. 
We believe in art, and we're going to help the artists in this town, and therefore we're going to turn our sanctuary into a performance space, and we're going to put aside a portion of our, of our income to help starving artists, and we're going, to, we're going to give a portion of our space outside the sanctuary for a gallery for art, and it's going on all over in our old denomination and everywhere. There is this going on, and I go, huh? Can you imagine Jesus setting up an art studio and saying, this is how I'm going to win this city? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going to a city and saying, I'm going to come here and I'm going to minister to the, to the artists. What were the artists? In the, well, they were the idol makers. We're going to minister to the idol makers. We're going to help them. We're going to be kind to them and show them the glory of Jesus. It, really? Is this the way the gospel goes forth? By ingratiating ourselves? Paul was not preaching himself but Christ. He was not ingratiating himself with men but serving God. Those who go to a city and seek to make countless relationships so that maybe at some point they'll be free to speak to their new friends about Jesus simply do not reflect the missionary method of Jesus. That is not his method nor was it the method he gave his disciples who spoke for God. They are ambassadors, messengers, representatives themselves, nothing at the end of the day they must say, as Jesus says, his, his true servants will say at the end of the day of serving him, we are merely unworthy servants. We are nothing. The bridegroom, he's everything. You and I, we're nothing. We need this attitude. They don't even get the chance to make relationships before they have to make judgments. Is this a worthy city? Do they listen? Is there a worthy person here? Is there someone here who's going to take me into his home and listen to the words I bring further? All that precedes relationship. You and I, we are just unworthy servants. We are only doing our duty. Our master, our king, he is the great one. Not you and not me. Second, we see that the... the the work that Jesus sends his disciples on is authoritative. They carry the word of God. They're heralds of a great king. That means they go before and declare his coming, his presence. Their words are their power. Words. By their words, they cure the sick. By their words, they cast out demons. By words, they lead people to the king and to eternal life. The much greater thing they do. Notice they go without money. They do not carry tools, not even a staff. They carry what? They carry words, nothing more. But by those words, they will transform the world. They don't go begging. They have authority. They don't go pleading. They do tell people that there's a kingdom coming. They do call them to, to enter that kingdom. But they don't go as beggars saying, please, 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 please. They have authority. They serve a king. The king has power. Words are what they go with. Words precede deeds. Now, of course, there is a, a clear command in Scripture to Christians to love their neighbor, to love their enemy, to love others more than self. And in the day of judgment, when the our Savior is seated on his throne and he, he says 
to those who belong to him, come here to my right hand, those of you who are loved by my father. He will say to them, I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous on that occasion are going to say back to Jesus, when did we see this? When, when, when were you sick? When were you naked? When were you a stranger? When did we do these things? And the king will answer, Jesus says, and say to them, truly I say to you, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So our works are vital. But notice this, the work of winning the lost, the work of carrying the gospel is not to be confused with earthly deeds of kindness. It is the highest kindness. It is the highest form of love for others to carry the message of the gospel. They can't help people with their physical needs of work. They don't go to help guys build houses or dig ditches. They don't do it because they're heralds of a king. They're ambassadors for a mighty king. They carry his word. You realize that in all the Gospels, that in all the Gospels, the one time Jesus actually does a physical deed for others is when? It's at the Last Supper. When he gets down and he washes the feet of those disciples who are with him in the upper room. It's the one time that Jesus does a physical deed. He does authoritative deeds constantly. He declares the power of God against darkness, sending out demons, healing the sick. But there is no record of his physically helping in other ways. He sees the, that poor widow dropping her last little coin in the collection box in the temple. Tells his disciples, there is a great, great woman who's given more than all the rest, who gave their mighty piles of gold. <laughs> he declares her righteousness, he declares her faith, but she goes on and he doesn't give her a penny. You understand that? He doesn't lift a finger to turn the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. His mother says, help son. He goes, all right, mom. And he says, bring the jugs of water and by his word. Jesus' good deeds are entirely his words. By his words, he calls men to repent. By his words, he heals disease. By his words, he blesses. By his words, he promises reward. By his words, he assures the thief on the cross beside him that he has paradise in view. He does not pretend that his message is advanced by earthly means. He just doesn't pretend it. The idea that we go to a city and we somehow, by our good deeds, make people ready for the gospel is really not true. Now, that doesn't mean we're not to do good deeds and to love our neighbors and to be righteous men. But the declaration of the gospel is distinct from good deeds. It is the best deed possible. And it is no lie to say that when we go to a country or a city or a village or a household and we declare the truth of Jesus Christ, we do more good than all the gifts we could give them and all the help we could provide them with our physical bodies. 
It is true that the gospel changes lives. And it is equally true that lives need changing far more than circumstances need changing. Jesus has power and he gives power. He has authority. He gives authority. He has given you authority. Don't forget it. Disciples actually follow the example of Jesus when there arises a controversy in the early church over the distribution of bread to the widows. They say, hey, look, you know, the apostles say this isn't good. <laughs> Let's find some men who can do the physical deeds of caring for the flock. We will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Their highest work is found in those words, preaching prayer. This was their method. Jesus declares very, very clearly that there is an authority to the one who goes out carrying the gospel. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus is saying, look, if they don't listen to you, they're in hot water with my father. These are not words that cut your legs out from under you. These are words that establish you. God the Father looks at how they respond to you, listens to you as you say, Father, they have done this to me. Look, the Bible is clear that God listens when we pray about how we're treated. The souls of the martyrs are underneath the altar of God in heaven, crying to him, Lord, how long, how long? God listens to us. And God has put it within your power. Now, let me say, you want to say, oh, I don't want to have that power. I don't want to make those judgments. Jesus has commanded you to make these judgments. We'll speak about why in a moment. But Jesus has commanded that you make judgments. That you act with authority rather than like you're weak. You're not weak. Your message isn't weak. It's powerful. So, why is this important? Well, because Jesus expects that the word that he sends them with will bear fruit. So much so that if a town isn't going to bear fruit, move on. Because there's a town that will. How many of you have ever said in your life, look, I'm barking up a dead tree here. I'm not, I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm going to move on. This is what Jesus commands. He says, if you're witnessing, oh, that's a big if, but if you're carrying the word of God and you're going out faithfully and people don't listen, then shake the dust off your feet and move on because the gospel has power and it changes lives. And you need to go and find those who are appointed to eternal life. You need to go on. You need to move on. And you need to stop mooning after those who have been rejected by God. The great Great example of this in the life of Samuel. Paul has rejected, God has rejected Saul as king. And Samuel, it's twice that Saul has sinned and the second one is just over for Saul. And Samuel is moping about, praying to God, saying God, and God says to him, Samuel, stop praying. He actually says, quit praying and get moving. I have my man. Go and go to Bethlehem, go to the house 
of Jesse, and you'll find the man who is my king. Stop moping. Can you believe that God would say there are times that you need to stop praying for people? That's what he told Samuel about Saul. Stop praying. Move on to those who will listen. Have you ever thought of your ministry in these terms? Authoritative, declarative? That it should be fruitful? Is your ministry bearing fruit? Do you carry God's word anywhere with power? Have you led anyone to the Lord? I, I think these are fair questions to ask. Have you led someone to Christ? Who are you focusing on? How long have you focused on them? Are they listening? Are they listening? If they're not listening, what are you supposed to do? Move on. Move on. Should be fruitful. So many of us are like that servant who says, well, I know this is a hard guy and it's a hard thing to do and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to hide my talent. I'm going to sit right here. I'm not going to go out and essay forth in any way because it's, it's kind of dangerous out there. And God is, oh, he's not that pleasant either. So I'm just going to bide my time, be my quiet self and hope that someone somewhere notices that I'm different. That is not the message. This is a method that's of Satan. Fourth, we have to recognize that Jesus expects that when we carry his word, there will be confrontation. There will be conflict. It requires it. Yes, it requires that you engage in conflict. This method, this divine method, this universal method, the method he gives his disciples for all time, is frankly confrontational and it must embrace conflict. It will divide. It understands the inevitability of conflict and hatred. It is the work of the soldier, not of the artist. It's the work of the soul that is strong and has hope and looks to the future not the work of the sentimentalist who looks to the past and wants to live on weak gruel spiritually. It is the work of a soldier. And that's why so often in Scripture you're told to take up your weapons. You're to wield them. You're to be armed. You're to work. You're to serve as a soldier all throughout the Bible. It's the work of a soldier. You're called to it. And a soldier is one who confronts. It's the work of the humble man or woman who's ready to die for a cause greater than himself or herself. Not the work of the precious man who values his own personal relationships or reputation more highly than the work and the glory of God. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing but Christ. And so Jesus says, beware of men, for they're going to del deliver you over to courts. They will flog you in their synagogues. It's not a question, it's a certainty. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you're to speak or what you are to say. 
It's not, when they, it's not if they deliver you, it's when they deliver you. Don't be anxious, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Oh, this is Jesus' missionary method, wasn't it? This is how he went. Even his own family came to take him, said he's crazy, he's lost his mind. And at that point he says to the crowd, when they tell him his family's there to take him away, he says, who are my mother and sisters, brothers? They're those who follow God. You who follow God. This was the method of Jesus. It was the method of the apostles. They followed this method. We need to be clear. Preaching the kingdom is not easy. Calling the world to repentance is not safe like baiting a bear at the zoo. There's no cage around you and keeping you free from the, the anger of those you go to. Is there really some good way to make this red-blooded message that you, as we speak to the people, you, 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 you're at war with God and he is angry at you. And if you don't come to Jesus, you will die under his wrath for all time. Is there a way to make this pleasant? Is this the message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. A great king is coming. And you'd better be ready for him. You'd better be prepared because he's very clear on what he's going to do to those who are not ready. This is the message they carried. This is the message that transformed the world. This is the message our world needs. This is the message we need to carry. And this is the message that they were killed for. Finally, I want to speak to those of you this morning who have never really listened to Jesus. To those who are here but are not here. In your mind, you've been wandering. You've gone to what you want to buy on Amazon. You've been thinking about what you're going to do later today. You've been thinking about how you like having sex with a girl. You've been doing all sorts of things, and I know you have been because I did it. And I want to say to you, that the time has come for you to repent. The Father God has established a moment for repentance. And if you allow that moment to pass, and we don't know when it is in our lives, but if you allow it to pass, you don't get a second chance. The Bible is clear. No room was found for Esau for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Do not listen to your mind and what you've been taught about God, and not to the word of God. Repent. Come to him. Change your path. Listen to the word. Be made new. Come to know the Savior and the joys of this life. Because let me end by saying the joys of this life far surpass any other joy. The wealthiest man on earth doesn't have one quintillionth the joy of the Christian operating under the power of God. This is joy. This is the life. I urge you, embrace it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his glorious power and majesty. And I pray, Heavenly Father, 
that we will live as he calls us to, both in our repentance and our producing works in keeping with repentance, and, Father, in our declaration of his truth as his disciples, boldly, powerfully, authoritatively, understanding that it's not us. Father, give us eternal life. Change this world. Change this city. Change our neighbors and our family. Give us life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.